can't say that I'm honored to introduce him because I fought vigorously to have this opportunity to introduce him. And I can't um, claim an honor that I self-claim. Uh, self um, but let me tell you why it's an honor. Um, in the courses I teach here at the Institute, I believe it's very important to appreciate the, the power and the influence of individuals, whether it's a class on national security affairs, or emerging threats, or cyber strategy, or whatever it may be. Um, understanding people is extremely important. How they lead, how they manage, what they may be interested in, what their experiences are, and perhaps more importantly, what's their political philosophy, their orientation, and what is their character? And when I learned that Will was going to be here to speak about his book, it struck me immediately that his book is about a great man who demonstrates all those traits. And Will very clearly, maybe not so profoundly or explicitly, but addresses all those traits of Ronald Reagan in his book. But more importantly to me, he represents all, all those traits. He is a leader. He is a very good manager. He is a curious intellectual. He is a man of tremendous character. Um, his faith is very important. His family is very important. Um, I find him to be one of the most remarkable people I had the privilege to serve with when I was on the National Security Council staff in the George Bush administration. Um, but there's more to it. This is a fantastic book. I'm halfway through it. Um, I'm, I'm laughing because I teach my students to write three-page memos, and typically historians write very thick books. But this is a fantastic book for, for a number of reasons. Um, it's written by a scholar. And despite the fact that he went to Stanford and Yale to get his degrees, um, although he did so before they became very woke and very confused about what it meant to be diversified, inclusion, uh, inclusive, and um, equitable. Um, he, he earned his degrees well before that, um, that this period, current period of, of angst. Um, but he's certainly a scholar. He's also an historian, an historian of tremendous talent. Um, one of my favorite historians passed away recently, David McCullough. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, his book, Morning on Horseback. And I remember thinking, who's going to replace McCullough? I think Will can certainly um, follow suit. Um, so he's not only a scholar, he's not only an historian, he's a policymaker. He's, has, he's had practice as a policymaker. He's served on the National Security Council staff, co-author of a national security strategy, which is no small feat. He um, served on the State Department's policy planning staff. Um, so he has a lot of experience as a policymaker, as we at IWP like to say, he's a scholar practitioner. And he's written a phenomenal book. And his final trait is uh, he writes extremely well. This is, this is a, a book that I encourage you all to pick up, not only if you're interested in Ronald Reagan, which this is about, but to understand good historiography and, and um, the research that was done to present a great man in a great book. And I would like to introduce to you a person who I think is great, Dr. Willenberg. Well, thank you very much, John. That uh, certainly was uh, overly kind. I uh, am not 
uh, worthy of even 10% of those felicitations, but I'll take them still. Uh, my goodness, to even be mentioned in the same breath as uh, David McCullough, let alone as, a, as an heir. I won't, won't pretend to that, but I will say uh, David McCullough and his work have certainly been an inspiration and, and model for model for me, and I'll even mention it in a couple, couple of ways here in a second. Um, uh, and John, you rightly pointed out the length of the book, um, and I will uh, plead uh, some culpability there. It is a fairly thick book. Um, I won't give away the ending, John, you know, halfway through, but don't worry, the good guys win, okay? So, and for the rest of you, you haven't read yet. Uh, I also will say um, this was a very consuming project over the you know, better part of 10 years, really, of research and writing, and my first draft of the manuscript, which I sent to my publisher, um, was 400 pages longer than this one. And so the hard part was not writing the book. The hard part was cutting 400 pages from it. So I had to cut it about by, by a third. Uh, so uh, if it does feel long to you, um, uh, just be reassured the earlier version was a lot longer. So And, and it's a better book for it, by the way, having been cut out, although there were any number of passages I wished I, wished I could have included, but um, uh, there would be a lot fewer people able to, able to get through it. Okay, to the to the book itself. Uh, no, one other thing before I do get to the book itself. Um, I've given a number of talks uh, on the book uh, across the country. Um, going to London next week and uh, Australia after that, so some international ones as well. Uh, in many ways, the one I've been looking forward to the most, or almost the most, London's pretty cool, right, is here. Um, because IWP not just conceptually, but quite literally embodies so much of the best of Reagan's national security legacy. Uh, you don't need me to tell you this, right? Your very founding chancellor, John Mazowski, uh, other, other stalwarts here, such as um, uh, Sven Kramer, uh, coming out of the Reagan NSC staff and playing very key roles in the development of his, his winning strategy. And so I think the continuing mission of IWP and great professors like Professor Sigronis here embody this, um, uh, do capture that element of, of statecraft, of taking leadership seriously, of taking ideas seriously, of connecting American power to a broader sense of moral, moral purpose. Uh, so it is a particularly suitable venue to be speaking here. All right, to the book itself, I first want to tell you a little bit about why I put it together the way I did, and then I'm going to walk you through some of the main, uh, the main, the main themes. Um, I wrote it as a narrative, so it unfolds in uh, chronological sequence, uh, it's designed to unfold as a story. Uh, that's fairly common for historical writing, um, but there's a lot of histories of the Cold War you can find that don't treat it as a narrative. Rather, we'll treat it regionally or thematically, any number of other ways you can do this. I wrote this one as a narrative. Uh, partly, I wanted it to be a, a readable and interesting story, but there's, there's some key arguments embedded in the uh, writing it as a narrative. First, and John referenced this, I want to show the role of, of leadership of, uh, of statesmanship, of individual decision-making. Uh, too often, uh, there's growing trends among other scholarly circles to treat the Cold War as just a big set of complicated structural factors, uh, a bipolar system, um, uh, shifting uh, tectonic plates in the international order. Those things are going on, but I think that, and I, I try to write the book this way, that individual presidents, especially one as transformative as Ronald Reagan, were not just uh, 
victims of circumstance or victims of these broader impersonal historical and geopolitical forces, uh, but rather uh, did make a difference. And in writing the book as a narrative where you can see the story unfolding as it does, you can see decisive moments uh, where Reagan had a choice. He could go this way or he could go this way. Uh, and had he gone another way, history might have, might have turned, out, turned, turned out differently. Or another president. Um, uh, if, if Reagan had not won, uh, might well, almost certainly would have taken things in a different direction. So uh, in writing as a narrative, I'm also trying to recapture the importance of individual choice of leadership. Um, secondly, uh, there is uh, creeping in amongst all of us, now that we're you know, some four decades removed, uh, give or take a little bit from the, from the end of the Cold War, a sense that the peaceful end of the Cold War was somehow inevitable. That, of course, the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Of course, the world would not be destroyed in a nuclear apocalypse. Uh, of course, uh, market democracies would emerge on, on, the, on the good end of the stick, and Soviet communism would, would, meet, would meet its demise. Um, and I even see this uh, some with you know, some of my students at University of Texas, who I love, this is not to criticize them, but they're all born well after the Cold War, right? It's distant history to them. It might as well be the Civil War or the War of 1812. And so you can look at and think, okay, well, the Soviet Union was such an absurdity. Of course, something like that could not, could not continue. Of course, our, our leaders would not have been so foolish as to destroy the world in a nuclear war. Well, any of you here who are old enough to remember the Cold War, others who studied it, you will know that... Uh, it, it did not seem that way at the time, and it was not. It did not look inevitable that the Soviet Union was going to collapse. And every day, uh, when President Reagan went into the Oval Office, and his uh, his NSC staff went to their desks in the, in the then OEOB, they did not know if this might be their last day on planet Earth. And furthermore, they did know that the fate of the planet and the fate of the free world hung on decisions they were going to be making, and how those decisions were going to be perceived in the, in the Kremlin and, and elsewhere around the world. And so writing the book as a narrative, even though we know now how the story ends, I made my you know, joke to John, you know, the good guys win, okay, they do, right? You know, um, uh, we're, we're here now because we know how it ends. Reagan and his team didn't know that at the time. Nobody did. And while they were pushing some pretty radical, I think pretty transformative policies and, and strategies, they believed in them and they were right to do so. But no one can be sure how this is all going to work out. No one can be sure this was going to lead to America's peaceful victory and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the preservation of the human race and, and, and planet Earth. And so I think writing the book in a way that the story unfolds uh, in real time and you can see and I hope see and feel how it, uh, how it looked uh, to President Reagan from sitting there behind his desk in the Oval Office or sitting across from Gorbachev at, uh, at the conference table at any number of their, their summits or sitting there at the head of the Situation Room table. Um, this should, I hope, disabuse us of this inevitability fallacy. Uh, and realize that just as I mentioned earlier, the individual leadership can make a difference. Um, that uh, when, our, when, our, when our leaders, when our president like Reagan, don't really know how things are going to play out, it makes all the more remarkable the, the risks that they are willing to take, uh, the presumptions that they're, that they're going to have, especially when those do turn out to be correct. A third reason I wrote it this way, and this is where I draw on my own time as a uh, recovering policymaker, as, you know, uh, being honored to work alongside John, is to recapture the complexity and the interplay of events. Right? So now that I'm a scholar, I have the luxury of picking one 
thing I want to study and study really deeply. So let's say I only wanted to study U.S.-Soviet arms control in the 70s and 80s. I could then spend the next 10 years researching everything about that, just that one topic, an important one, a meaty one, but still just one topic. Um, presidents have no such luxury. Uh, senior decision makers, secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, CIA directors uh, have, have no such luxury. Every day brings an unrelenting cascade of challenges and decisions and issues into their inbox. And they cannot ignore all the others and just focus on the one big thing that they want to focus on. And so in the case of uh, the Reagan administration foreign policy, even as I'm trying to chart through this book and you know the main theme of my talk, to, uh, my, my remarks here is the Cold War, Reagan is also dealing with severe trade tensions with Japan hostage crises and terrorism in, in, the, in, the, in the Middle East, uh, uh, instability and civil war in, in Southern Africa, all the conflicts, of course, in, in, in Central America. Um, uh, uh, the, the, what becomes the third wave of democ democratizations. Uh, and then, uh, you know, more, mon more mundane stuff, such as, you know, fights with Congress over funding for the MX or a number of things. Um, and so one also can't appreciate the strategy he's devising and implementing uh, to bring the Soviet Union to a peaceful, peaceful surrender without appreciating all the other issues that are crashing in on him and that he's having, that he's having to manage. And I came away from uh, from this with an even greater appreciation for him as a strategist, uh, because in a lot of ways that I don't think others had fully appreciated, he did connect a lot of those dots, right? Uh, and so his effort to, just to give one example that I traced through the book, to uh, transform the U.S.-Japan relationship from primarily an economic rivalry, the, the, the severe trade imbalances we had, to primarily a strategic partnership, uh, was in part because of his vision for reorienting the American strategic posture in Asia, um, placing Japan uh, at the forefront instead of China, as Carter and Ford and Nixon had done. But it also was a Cold War play. It was his effort to essentially open up a new front in the global Cold War so that the Soviets would feel more pressure in their Far East, right? The Soviet uh, Union being a Pacific power, as it was. Um, and so uh, that gave me a greater appreciation for when Reagan is meeting with you know, some Japanese trade officials to haggle over, uh, uh, over their um, import barriers to American beef and citrus, uh, and he's mindful of, you know, farmers in key states like Texas and Florida being concerned about this. It's not just a domestic politics issue for Reagan. It's not even just an economic issue for Reagan. It's not even just an Asian policy issue for Reagan. It also is connected back to this broader Cold War grand strategy. Um, so that's another reason why I write the books so that you can see every day, every week, all these different issues that Reagan and his team are trying to manage. Most of them, I think, they do pretty well. Others, not so much. And they're, you know, the, while the book is a favorable treatment overall, I try to be critical where I think criticism is due. And you know, certainly a number of his Middle East policies uh, fit, fit that bill. And then finally, I'll just briefly say the um Writing the book as a narrative, as a story, I try to make clear that this is a human story. This is about uh, remarkably talented, fiercely opinionated, very principled, and deeply flawed human beings. And the friction and passion and murkiness and rivalries that happen when you throw all of them together on a big team that doesn't always feel so much like, like a team. And John and I were just talking about this uh, earlier, earlier, earlier before, before, before stepping up here. Uh, so the, the act the leaking, the infighting, the Reagan administration, every White House has this, right? This just comes to the territory uh, when the stakes are really high. 
Uh, and as you said, you've got bright, talented, experienced, motivated people, but it's even more acute than most for the Reagan administration. And so again, I don't just want to treat the policy strategy and policy development and implementation as this rather sterile flowchart, uh, but that this is be done by, uh, like I said, by uh, very uh, singular human beings, uh, remarkably capable and also remarkably flawed. Um, Okay, to turn to the the broader arc of the uh, the story the story itself, um, my book focuses. It's not a full biography of Reagan. It's not even a history of his presidency. It's just a history of foreign policy in his eight years as president. Um, and there's certainly certainly plenty plenty there to make a long book. But to set the scene. Uh, um, the dismal decade of the 1970s and the multiple crises that afflicted our country and that Reagan inherits. Uh, I think if we look back to that moment on January 20th, 1981, noon or 12.01, when he says, standing there on the steps of the Capitol and taking the oath of office, he inherits uh, potentially the, certainly the worst hand any president had inherited since FDR took the oath of office in 1933, you know, at, at the height of the Depression. Um, uh, he inherits a very, very difficult hand. Um, and I'll just walk through what I call the, the five crises of the 1970s, all of which together uh, crippled, weakened, wounded, demoralized our, our, our country. Um, the first, of course, is the military crisis. Um, eight years earlier, almost to the day that Reagan takes the oath of office, the last American combat troop had left Vietnam. Uh, was, you know, within a day or two, it, uh, I think like January 18th, 1973, the last troop was withdrawn. And, and, um, and so Vietnam, you know, the first lost war uh, in our nation's history, Terrible costs, over 59,000 American dead, millions of Vietnamese dead, uh, the, the military uh, demoralized and divided, uh, deep fissures in American society. Um, Vietnam is not history when Reagan takes the oath of office. It is yesterday. Okay, So it is still a very fresh, vivid, painful trauma. And... And the military is feeling that very acutely. Shortly after Vietnam, uh, you know, the, the post-Vietnam, post-Watergate Congress slashes uh, the defense budgets. Um, uh, and so the military is not only demoralized from the loss in Vietnam, but now they're severely under-resourced. And then we're transitioning to the all-volunteer force, which was the right decision to do, absolutely. But that was a very difficult time to do it. Uh, it would be difficult to do that in any time, but especially uh, when uh, in, in the aftermath, aftermath of, of Vietnam. And so the American military, when Reagan uh, takes over, uh, he's got a vision for restoring and strengthening it, and I'll, I'll come back to some of the details of that, uh, but it is not in good shape at all. Um, and as, you know, the most visible instrument in many ways of America's, uh, uh, American power, power abroad, that's, that's the first crisis that he, that he inherits. Um, the second is the broader foreign policy crisis globally. Uh, you know, my, my summary of this is, in January of 1981, if you were to be keeping a, a running scorecard in the Cold War, you know, the, the net assessment, the overall balance sheet, Soviet strengths uh, with, uh, measured against American strengths, geopolitical advances, all that, it was quite clear the Soviets were winning, right, and we were losing. Um, just, uh, again, consider the, the previous eight years, just in those previous eight years, South Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Angola, Mozambique, Nicaragua, Grenada, South Yemen, 
Afghanistan, several others I can mention, had all fallen to Soviet-sponsored communist communism, right? They all had been enveloped into the Soviet bloc. None of these were free and fair elections. They all had been taken over by, uh, by communist revolutions. Uh, and so globally, it seems pretty clear, yes, communism is on the, uh, on the, on the advance, and uh, free governments, um, uh, or even you know, uh, just non-communist military dictatorships seem, seem to be in retreat. The Soviet Union, you know, experts will continue to debate this endlessly, but I think the best summary is the Soviet Union probably hits the apex of its military strength in 1981 or 82. Uh, if you look at you know, kind of the, the massive Brezhnev arms buildup which had been going on for the previous, uh, previous 15, 15 years or so, um, across most metrics of military, military power, the Soviets are, are, are eclipsing us. Um, but that in turn is creating, like I said, a broader foreign policy crisis. So the military crisis is the first one, and that leads into the foreign policy crisis. And I have not even yet mentioned the Iran hostage crisis, right, which is tangential to the Cold War, but still another severe body blow to the, to the United States. Uh, um, uh, 52 American uh, diplomats, spies, uh, and Marine guards held hostage for 444 days by the radical uh, uh, revolutionary government in, in, in Iran. A further humiliation to the United States certainly contributes to Jimmy Carter's, Jimmy Carter's loss. The third crisis, so we've got the military crisis, the foreign policy crisis. Third crisis is the energy crisis, right? Starting with um, the OPEC oil embargo in 1973 after the Yom Kippur War, and throughout the 1970s, the United States was not producing near enough oil and gas to meet our own energy needs. We were disproportionately reliant on uh, oil and gas coming from the from the broader, broader Middle East, uh, and that that embargo coupled with our our, our low production uh, was uh, was really devastating our economy, but also just quite literally preventing us from fueling our country. This is why you know the hours long lines at, at gasoline stations just to fill up uh, fill up your car with a, with a tank of gas, things that we take take for granted today, uh, and so. The energy crisis is both a foreign policy crisis because it's largely inflicted on us by countries outside our borders uh, who see the United States as weak and vulnerable and unable to, uh, uh, to, to retaliate, but also in turn leads to the fourth crisis, the economic crisis, uh, since uh, the Lack of uh, secure, reliable, and abundant uh, energy energy supplies also play into the broader crisis of the American economy. We have this perverse new phenomenon of stagflation, uh, high unemployment, low growth, and high inflation. Um, of course, we're dealing with high inflation now, but at least we're not having uh, runaway runaway uh, un unemployment either. And it had been like that for several years. And so it's not just, okay, another cycle of uh, we're having a few down months with the stock market. And um, um, rather, it seems that uh, the American system of free, uh, free market capitalism might be fundamentally broken. Right? We had gotten through the Great Depression for, uh, four, four decades earlier, but now you know, has this system run its course? Uh, is socialism actually the, the, the better way to go? Many people are even having to ask some of those hard questions. And of course, a, a weak, stagnant economy uh, plays into these other things, right? It means you can't adequately fund your military. Uh, you can't uh, rally uh, the, the American people behind a more robust foreign policy abroad if they feel like their needs are not even being met, met at home. And certainly can't uh, hold yourself as a leader of, of the, the West, Western alliance if your economy is such a mess. And in turn, uh, our, our economic woes were contributing to Europe's economic woes too, right? So the Brits were having our time, the West Germans were having our time. Um, and then 
finally, the fifth crisis is the crisis of national morale. All these other things, right? If everything else is going on, you start to think, we just don't believe in ourselves as a country anymore. You know, the American dream is dead. Uh, any notion of American exceptionalism, of a broader American purpose in the world, just seems uh, hopelessly passe and, and over. Uh, most Americans thought our best days were behind us. Um, uh, you know, we'd had a pretty lousy run for that that uh, that decade. You know, not just the loss in Vietnam, but then of course the the, the Water, Watergate scandal and loss of faith in in, in the political class. Uh, and so this is why Reagan, when he takes out of office, he has those. Uh, three, three great purposes, right? One is restore the American economy. Two is restore our national morale, our, our national sense of ourselves. And the third is uh, don't just manage but win the Cold War. Um, and I will come to come to that next. However, there is one other thing I need uh, to. I think we ought to comment on. A, and this, uh, I kind of stumbled into this insight. It had not occurred to me until I started trying to recapture and recreate the history of the time. It seemed to many Americans when Reagan took office that the presidency itself, the institution of the presidency, was also broken, right? It wasn't just that, oh, there's been a bad cycle of foreign policy and economic uh, policy setbacks. Let us take as an overly simplistic rule of thumb that a successful presidency is a presidency uh, that lasts two full terms, right? Where the president runs, gets elected, does reasonably well in his first term and then gets reelected to the second term and completes the second term. I'm not saying every two-term president is a one or one success, but it's hard to think of many that were really successful uh, that don't uh, that do not do uh, complete uh, two, two full terms. It's a basic prerequisite. Um, when Reagan is elected, the last time an American president had completed two terms was Dwight Eisenhower, 20 years earlier, um, and you know, an entire generation earlier. Since then, there had been five presidencies, all ended prematurely. Right? Kennedy, felled by an assassin's bullet. LBJ, driven from office in disgrace and ruin over the, his uh, disastrous mismanagement of the, of the, of the war. Uh, doesn't even run for re-election. Nixon, of course, resigns in disgrace with Watergate. Ford, uh, Nixon's unelected vice president, you know, register there, uh, is not able to run, tries to run for not even re-election, just election after two and a half years, and is defeated by Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter then doesn't, you know, just last one term and gets defeated by Ronald Reagan. And so this is another challenge Reagan faces, in a growing sense, maybe this office is just uh, broken. Maybe it is too big for one person to occupy and wield the power and authority of the presidency successfully to tackle all these other problems, to tackle these other five crises that we're talking about. So I went into a little more detail there because I think it's very important to appreciate when we go back and try to revisit uh, the strategy that Reagan puts together in the Cold War, his foreign policy priorities, this context really matters. It's not just uh, the military is a little underfunded. The Soviets have, you know, had a good good couple of years. Uh, it seems that everything has turned against the United States in deep and fundamental, and perhaps irreversible ways. And that is why I come back to that theme about leadership. That even when things are this bad, that with inspired leadership and some other things too, we'll talk about that. That uh, that uh, a turnaround, a change for the better, is possible. Okay, now to the, the main theme of the book itself, the Cold War. Um, uh, here again, uh, context matters for just how revolutionary I think Reagan's new Cold War, Cold War strategy is. And some of this will be very resonant with uh, IWP's own, own mission. 
Um, so, so when Reagan takes, takes office, the Cold War has been going for about, let's say, 35 years, right? We can't give it a precise single start date the way we can with uh, the start of, start of World War II, but it started in, you know, pretty much right after World War II in 1946-47. And you've had a number of Cold War presidents, uh, you know, starting with Harry Truman on up to Jimmy Carter. We've had Republicans, we've had, we've had, we've had Democrats. Um, and each Cold War president would have some different emphases in his Cold War strategy, but this was all occurring within the same basic paradigm. Every previous president had a fairly similar theory of the case in the Cold War overall, which is that the Cold War is a great power competition between the two most powerful countries in the world, the United States and the Soviet Union. So it's a great power competition that happens to be a battle of ideas. So every other president knew that there's an ideological dimension to this. Right? You know, that you know, we're democratic capitalist society, the Soviets are uh, a command economy and a totalitarian government. Um, so that the ideological difference is there, but this is fundamentally a great power competition. Soviets have a powerful military and a large economy. We have a powerful military and a large economy, relatively speaking, uh, and we're just kind of butting heads over that. And it followed from that for every previous president before Reagan, that the strategic paradigm to use is containment. Uh, first developed by George Kennan and then you know, manipulated and evolved, uh, 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 adapted over, over time. Containment was predicated for most of these presidents on the view that the Soviet Union is a stable, permanent part of the geopolitical landscape. We don't like them. We don't want them to get stronger than us. We don't want them to continue advancing. But we also need to realize, we need to be realistic that they're not going away. Right? They've been around for 70 years at that point. They're going to be around for at least another century or so. This is the prevailing conventional wisdom. And if it, it thus follows that if you have this large, powerful adversary that's not going away, you need to, uh, and you don't want to blow up the whole world with being too confrontational, you need to contain them. And so the, the basic uh, strategy was let us manage the Soviet Union and contain it from any further, further expansion. It's a, it's a problem, to be, problem to, be, to be managed. Reagan comes in with a very different theory of the case, and he reverses that equation I gave you. For Reagan, the Cold War is primarily a battle of ideas that happens to be a great power competition. So both elements are there, like with others, but the emphasis matters, and the new emphasis really matters. And from that, it follows that he sees uh, Soviet communism not as a rival system to be contained and managed, but as a vile idea to be defeated. Uh, and, and from there, of course, follows a very different set of, uh, a very different strategy and a very different set of, uh, set of, set of policy lines. Uh, as Reagan, you know, famously said to uh, uh, his then campaign advisor and then first national security advisor, Richard Allen, my theory of the case in the Cold War is this, we win, they lose, right? Now that's vintage Reagan because it's just four pithy words, it's kind of a good punch in the guts, you know, kind of uh, gets, you, gets you excited about it. But there's actually much more, I think, strategic sophistication in those four words than we appreciate. This is not just a bumper sticker campaign slogan. We win. It actually believes that it's possible for the United States to prevail in this competition, not just manage it, but prevail. They lose that he actually believes it's possible to defeat the Soviet Union. Again, not just to manage and contain it or prevent it from, um, from expanding, expanding any, any, any further. But there's another important part of uh, Reagan's theory of the case is, while he wants to uh, bring the Soviet Union to uh, collapse and defeat, I think it's very clear that he envisions that, 
He wants to keep the Cold War cold, meaning he does not want it to turn into a hot war, certainly not a conventional war in Europe with Soviet troops and tanks pouring through the Fulda Gap, and especially not a nuclear war. And he is, uh, he is very, very terrified about, about that. And so that's why, and again, as we were talking to uh, Chancellor Lenzowski earlier, Reagan puts together these two, uh, two prongs of his strategy of pressure and outreach, right? So uh, full spectrum of pressure, and I'll walk you through a little bit more of what the specifics of that pressure, that pressure looked like on the Soviet system, but also uh, fairly consistent di diplomatic outreach saying, uh, while we're pressuring you, while we're trying to bring your system to collapse, we also want to have the, the off-ramp, if you will, the safety valve of negotiations, of, of diplomacy, uh, to, to reduce the threat of nuclear war, maybe even uh, maybe end it. Now, you're, you can all, I think, immediately hear, there's some real tension between that. Like, how can you negotiate in good faith with a, uh, with a system you're trying to collapse and defeat, right? Um, but that is, I think, some of the strategic genius of Reagan, is that he's able to hold on to both of those uh, and genuinely pursue both of those. And, and recalibrating, right, sometimes he's put this foot more on the pressure prong, other times maybe a little bit more on the, on the outreach prong. And this is because, and this is the final point about his, uh, his strategic analysis, his net assessment of the Soviet Union, he saw the Soviet Union as a unique combination of strong and weak. Right? So he recognizes that they're at the apex of their military might. He recognizes that this is a very dangerous adversary. He often talks about, you know, we're in the window of maximum uh, vulnerability here. Um, so he sees them as militarily strong. But he also sees, in ways that very few other people do at the time, the political and economic and ideological weaknesses in the Soviet system. Uh, he sees much earlier than most do the decrepitude of its economy. He sees the illegitimacy of its claim to uh, represent its people when that really means just rule and uh, over them and oppress them. And not just the peoples of the Soviet republics themselves, but of course the captive peoples of, uh, of, of, the, of the Warsaw Pact too. He recognizes the Soviet Union is an empire. Um, much sooner, much uh, sooner than, than most, and of course, and of course, he says that. Um, and so, this perception of Soviet uh, strength and militarily, which needs to be deterred, and then uh, otherwise uh, weaknesses, is also key to understanding how and why Reagan does this combination of this pressure, pressure and, and outreach, outreach strategy. Um, and this is, uh, in hindsight, I think we can see that it works quite well. Uh, that's, I certainly make that case in my book. But I, at the time, it wasn't, sure, wasn't so clear that, that, that it would. It was quite dangerous. Uh, you know, the analogy I've used in other settings is we might think of the Soviet Union as a wounded, cornered bear. Right, so it's still got fangs and claws, and is very dangerous uh, and militarily powerful as a as a bear as a bear will be. But it also is wounded and cornered with all these other weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And that's actually the most dangerous bear there is. Right, um, that's the most dangerous kind of bear there is. And so, how do you uh, you know continue to uh, apply uh, apply pressure on that bear, uh, preventing it from doing any harm, while also looking for a way to calm things down so that it doesn't just lash out and uh, destroy itself and you and everything, everything that's around. My summary of what Reagan is trying to do with all this, as I, I spent you know, several years trying to puzzle, okay, how can I summarize what he's trying to do here? Because this is a number of different prongs all feeding together, quite a bit in tension with each other. I think his goal was a negotiated surrender. 
He clearly wanted the Soviet Union to surrender. He wanted it to collapse. He wanted you know, the, the, the world to be rid of that menace of Soviet communism. But he wanted it to be done in part through those negotiations, right? So that's why he was not demanding an unconditional surrender or trying to start a conventional war, let alone a, a, a nuclear war. And so negotiated surrender is the outcome that he's, that he's, that he's looking for. Um, and again, as I go into quite a bit of detail in the book, I won't read all these here, here for you now. Um, in hindsight, I think we can see he's exactly correct, right, in recognizing the threat of Soviet uh, adventurism and military strength, but also the many other weaknesses and liabilities and rot in the system. But it wasn't evident at the time. And I go in quite a bit of detail in the book, and John, you've uh, probably come to these sections are all about uh, expert opinions said otherwise, right? You know, most of American Sovietologists in civilian universities think this is crazy. They've spent their life studying the system. They think that it's uh, strong and resilient and durable. Sure, it may not be the most efficient or happy place, uh, but, you know, there's a famous article in Foreign Affairs at the end of 1982 by two very eminent Sovietologists from, um, uh, from Columbia and Smith going... Uh, uh, all through Reagan's strategy and saying he is wrong, 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 wrong. There's no way the Soviet system will be brought to collapse. It's just wrong. Um, and, and then a number of CIA assessments are, uh, you know, uh, come to similar conclusions. Yeah, the economy may not be super dynamic, but it can keep going along. Um, one of the CIA's top, top Soviet analysts writes in 1983 that uh, just as our grandfathers dealt with the Soviet Union and we are dealing with the Soviet Union now, our grandkids are still going to be dealing with the Soviet Union. And it's not going to be collapsed or changed as a result of this administration or any, any other administration's policies. Um, I could give you more and more examples like that. The point being, uh, even by coming up with this new strategy and this new theory of the case, Reagan is flying very much in the face of most expert opinion and conventional wisdom. Um, Okay, so the um, the 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 pressure uh, the 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 pressure pongs of a strategy. I'll kind of walk you through how these how these work how these work here in the final part of the talk. Um, uh, so he has three goals with his pressure strategy. Um, first is to deter Soviet aggression. Okay, all, every previous president would have had that one as well. But the second two goals of Reagan's pressure strategy are unique to Reagan, uh, and he develops these. Um, in tandem with Richard Pipes, uh, his uh, main uh, Soviet expert on the NSC staff in the first first couple of years, um, and a, a few other key aides. But a lot of this is really unique to Reagan. First, it really is pressure to weaken and collapse the Soviet system. Right? That, that's that's very clear. Okay, that they want to bring this this system this system down. But the third one, I think, is even uh, more interesting and less appreciated. As part of the pressure, they want to, and they're very explicit about this, pressure the Soviet system to strengthen reform elements and produce a reformist leader. Because remember, he wants to negotiate. He wants to have that prong of diplomatic outreach uh, and conciliation as well. But you've got to have a negotiating partner. You've got to have a reformist leader who will you know, meet you halfway. You can actually talk to you about these things. Uh, this is why I titled the chapter in my book, When Gorbachev Comes to Power in 1985, Waiting for Gorbachev because Reagan had spent the first four years and two months of his presidency waiting for a Gorbachev. Maybe not necessarily Mikhail Gorbachev himself, right? He doesn't know it's necessarily going to be him until a couple months before, but look, waiting and looking, and not just waiting, but trying to actively bring about such a Soviet leader. Um, and so that is a very important part of the, the pressure strategy. Uh, so uh, a little more detail on uh, some of these specific pressure prompts. First, the military one. Uh, a lot I, more I could go into here, but here's the top line, mindful of time. Reagan, in increasing and dramatically increasing the Pentagon's budget, is not just trying to outspend and outbuild the Soviets. That's part of it. He is trying to outsmart them. 
And if you look in detail at the types of weapons systems, new weapons platforms that uh, he and Secretary of Defense Cap Weinberger are investing in and, and deploying, uh, they're designed to leverage America's uh, technological capabilities, our edge and in innovation uh, and, and research uh, and, and STEM fields to be not, not just match the Soviets in, in quantity, but to dramatically exceed them in quality. Right. And, and again, maybe during the Q&A, I can walk you through what that, uh, some of the specific examples of that. Uh, but the whole, whole idea here is let's, let's uh, this, he, he's drawing some from Andy Marshall's competitive strategies framework in the Office of Net Assessment. You know, so he's picking up on some ideas that were first developed in the 1970s. But Reagan is resourcing them and integrating them into a broader, a broader strategy. Um, and so if you look at the full spectrum of uh, new weapon systems coming online in the Reagan years, almost every one of them is designed to be so much more technologically advanced than anything the Soviets have. And the ultimate goal here, this ties back into some of the outbuild and outspend thing, is to show the Soviets no matter how many more rubles you may throw at building you know, another 20,000 T-72s or another 10,000 SS-18s uh, or another 5,000 MiG-25 full spectrum, You'll never keep pace with the United States because just one of ours, you know, picked weapon system is going to be uh, so much qualitatively better than, than 50, 50 of yours. Um, so that's a very important to appreciate about the military prompt, not just out outspend, but outsmart. Second, the ideological one. Again, very much at the at the core of IWP's mission, mission as well. Um, Reagan uh, does not accept the fundamental legitimacy of Soviet communism as a system. You know, he he is uh, you know sees very clearly that any system that has to invest such tremendous resources in oppressing and controlling uh, and monitoring its own people does not have their trust and confidence. Right? This is not a legitimate system. He saw it as more of a parasite on the Soviet people. His enemies were not the Soviet people. He had great affection for them. It was it was that Soviet system, uh, and so this is why. You even hey, you know my my students uh, do you know the only thing they might know about Reagan oh see the evil empire guy see the tear down the small guy well yes he was and those are memorable turns of phrase but in context if you read his most noteworthy foreign policy speeches in their entirety and in context you see I read them as this uh, mounting sophisticated sequential arguments. Uh, about the moral depravity and political illegitimacy of Soviet communism. And he's trying to speak that truth to the world, and including he's trying to speak that truth to the Soviet people, to give them a voice that they can't have themselves, right? So in 1981, uh, he goes to Notre Dame, his first big foreign policy speech for the Notre Dame's commencement. And this was done, by the way, with malice aforethought, because Jimmy Carter's first foreign policy speech four years earlier had been at Notre Dame, where Carter had bewailed or bemoaned America's inordinate fear of communism, right? Reagan goes with a very different message. Uh, this is where he says, the West won't just contain communism, we will transcend communism as some bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages are even now being written, right? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an eloquent turn of phrase, but remember, when he specifically rejects containment, saying we're gonna go way, way beyond that, we think that we can bring this thing to its end. And because he knows that Marxism, uh, one of its cardinal tenets is the historical dialectic, disbelieve that they are at the inevitable vanguard of historical process, he also turns that on his head. He says, no, I believe in a very different direction in history, uh, uh, with a teleology that favors freedom. Um, in 1982, he gives what I think is his greatest speech, the Westminster Address, where he says that uh, Marxism-Leninism will end up on the ash heap of history. Again, an eloquent turn of phrase, but ash heap of history, 
he is also turning the Marxist historical dialectic on its head there. The next year, he calls them an evil empire. And, and that's not just a slip of the tongue. He also, in that same speech, calls them the focus of evil in the modern world. And of course, all of the polite opinion and chattering classes here in, in the Amtrak corridor are just outraged that he would be so moralistic as to call this system evil. Um, he does that very literally. The Kremlin was also outraged. Not so much because he called them evil. They don't like that. But because, because he called them an empire. Because remember, another cardinal tenet of Marxist ideology is it's those capitalists who are the imperialists. We, the, the Marxists, are the anti-imperialists, right? We are helping to liberate the, 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 the vanguard of the, uh, the oppressed working classes of the world. And yet Reagan was pointing out to, you know, to the Kremlin and everyone else, I'm calling your bluff. You know, when you guys send Red Army troops into Occupy and subjugate Poland and Bulgaria and East Germany and Czechoslovakia, we can go through all this Warsaw Pact countries, and you hold them in servitude as vassal states, that is imperialism. When you are staging uh, violent Marxist revolutions in places like, uh, like Cuba or Nicaragua or elsewhere, uh, and then deploying Soviet troops there too, that is, that is imperialism. So again, these, what we, we may know the, in isolation as these colorful turns of phrase, they are part of a more sophisticated strategy of this ideological pressure that he's putting on the Soviet Union. Third one, human rights, democracy, religious freedom. Uh, Reagan sees uh, Soviet and Warsaw Pact dissidents and activists as his partners, his natural allies, right? So this is why um, we do so much covert and overt support for solidarity in Poland, uh, why Reagan is such a champion for the Jewish refuseniks in, this, in the Soviet, Soviet Union, uh, and then you know, imprisons uh, Siberian Pentecostals and, and others. Um, this drives the Kremlin crazy. Uh, he keeps on calling out uh, their, their oppression of their own people and highlighting these political and religious dissidents and these gulag prisoners. Uh, but Reagan is doing it partly because he believes in it. He believes in human liberty and human dignity, but also because this is his way of helping put internal pressure on the Kremlin, right? Sometimes we may think, oh, yeah, he wants to pressure the Kremlin, so he does that military buildup. Um, uh, and maybe tries to cut off some of their outside economic resources. He does, but he's also trying to put internal pressure on the, uh, on the Kremlin by siding with their own people against, uh, against the, broad, the broader system. Um, economic pressure, too. And again, a, a whole book can be written just, just on that. Um, but Reagan's key insight here is uh, the Soviet economic system cannot continue sustaining itself. It is in desperate need of hard currency from the outside. The main way they were getting that was uh, Soviet oil and gas exports. And so he works with, uh, besides helping restore the American uh, oil and gas production, he works with the Saudis, persuades them to increase their production, crash the price of oil, and starve the Soviets of another $20 billion a year in hard, hard currency. This also, by the way, is one of the ways to understand the Reagan doctrine. Again, we could do a whole talk just on that. But, you know, briefly uh, supporting anti-communist fighters and doing their own fighting for themselves, right? So one of the hard lessons of Vietnam is if you can avoid it, don't send 500,000 American ground troops in a distant uh, civil war in a quagmire. But if there are people who want to fight for themselves, want to fight for their own freedom, especially against uh, communist tyranny, let's give them the weapons and economic aid that they need. That's why we support the Contras in Nicaragua, the UNITA rebels in Angola, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. So, but, but that is part of Reagan's economic strategy, too, because as he's looking more carefully at the Soviet Union, he realizes they cannot afford to feed their own people. That's why they're having to buy grain from American farmers. 
and they certainly can't afford to keep subsidizing all their satellites uh, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars a year. But let's increase that pressure. Right? Let's support the people fighting against uh, the, the communist governments in those, in those satellites. And so that's another way of bleeding the, the Kremlin's, the Kremlin's co uh, coffers. The final pressure prong I want to highlight is allies. Uh, there's been no president, American president before since Reagan who's been more devoted to allies than he was. He saw America's allies as a unique source of American strength. Uh, the fact that our NATO allies, our Asian allies, Japan, South Korea, Australia, uh, uh, are voluntarily pledged to fight alongside us in a war, uh, to partner with us against uh, broader security threats. Um, and, and he also, uh, he believed in the value of allies in their own right, but he also saw that if he wasn't sure about the value of allies, the Kremlin knew the value of America's allies, which is why they spend so much time trying to weaken our alliances and split us off from our allies. And so Reagan gets tremendous benefit from our allies. He is able to persuade uh, um, most of them, especially the Japanese, to dramatically increase their own defense spending, do more of their burden sharing, uh, deep intelligence cooperation. Uh, two of the three most successful uh, intelligence operations that we run in the 1980s are done with allies, one with the Brits and one with the, one with the, one with the French. Um, and of course, uh, especially the Allies' willingness uh, to allow Reagan to deploy our intermediate-range nuclear missiles throughout Western Europe. Pershing II's in West Germany, ground-launched uh, nuclear-tipped cruise missiles in Italy, Belgium, Netherlands, West Germany, and, and the UK. Very key for countering the Soviets on deployment of their, their SS-20s. Now look, I could give you a whole other talk on all the problems Reagan has with Allies too, right? They drive them crazy. They're a real pain. Okay, um, uh, this is, you know, when I'm talking about his devotion to allies, I'm not trying to only give a, a happy uh, just-so just story. Um, but uh, his, his rock-solid commitment to the allies enables him to manage those frictions. Um, it's in some ways kind of like a bad marriage, right? They're fighting all the time, but they're still married, and they stay married, and they're, and they're, still, they're still together. Okay, then just a little bit on the, on the outreach, the out, outreach prong. Um, uh, all this pressure, I wanted to lay it out because you cannot understand Reagan's diplomacy and negotiations with the Soviets without first understanding the pressure. Uh, so for him, negotiations are not just about let's sit down and talk, not even let's sit, let's sit down and argue. Rather, for him, he approaches negotiations uh, and he wants to do it from a position of strength. So that's why he very much believes in the integration of force and diplomacy. Uh, in a strong military, you know, part of his military uh, build-up strategy is to strengthen his diplomacy, right? To, so that when he meets with the Soviet counterpart, you know, eventually Mikhail Gorbachev, Gorbachev doesn't just look across the table and see Reagan. He looks across the table and sees Reagan backed up by the most formidable military the world had known to that point. Um, and that changes the conversation. Right, uh, to, to put it mildly, as well as all these other, uh, all these other, other, other pressure problems. Reagan also does not believe in negotiations for negotiation's sake. He uh, does not want summits just for photo ops or just because it almost becomes this kind of, you know, routinized cult, if you will, of every American president has to meet with their Soviet counterpart. It's just what you do. And maybe you can come up with some deals, maybe you don't, but it's just what you do. He is the first and only president in the Cold War history not to meet with his Soviet counterpart in his first term. Going back to Truman himself, every previous American president had met with his Soviet counterpart in his first term. That's just what you did. 
Some of those summits got some things done, others didn't, but that was just the expectation. And so for Reagan to resist that pressure to uh, meet with his Soviet counterpart just for the sake of meeting, he said, I'm very willing to meet with what I want to, but it's got to be when the circumstances are right, when our hand has been strengthened, that I will be able to negotiate from a, uh, a position of strength and confidence. And when we actually have some progress that can be made, then I'll be willing, then I'll be, I'll, I'll be willing to do it. Of course, it does not... Uh, uh, help uh, that the Soviet leadership at this point is so unhealthy. Right? There's this famous line, so in 1982, Brezhnev dies. He's succeeded by Andropov. Uh, Andropov dies about 13 months later, uh, and he is succeeded by Chernenko. Chernenko dies 11 months later, right? So three of them die in rapid succession. And Reagan is asked at this point, says, you know, uh, some reporters, you know, Mr. President, why won't you meet with the Soviet counterpart? He says, I want to, but they keep dying on me. 